not gonna make you. Um, I'm not gonna make us walk up a hill. Yeah, <laughs> to thank you. This episode. Thank you, Doug. I, <laughs> oh, yeah, I feel like I feel like George went. <laughs> good, good friend. <laughs> nearly dying, uh, nearly dying, George went. He's sending me the picture of John Getz and George went. They're like, this is us. I was like. That it is. That yeah. it is. Yeah. Although I didn't realize, like I said, it was another example of too early where, look, when I take those pictures, I'll be honest, half the time it's just a fat guy and a thin guy. <laughs> like, but no, I think I think you got this one good because they were both nerds. Yeah, that was like exactly. what stuck out even more. They're both nerds. They're both definitely nerds. As opposed to the previous one when they're vile ghouls. Yeah, and like I said, I kind of waited. I was like... Let's give this five minutes, and Patrick might be rethinking this choice. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, I take this back. This is an insult to both of us. We're not, we're not leaving." And the other yeah, guy, <laughs> leaving, and the other guy doesn't really matter. The other guy, <laughs> yeah, kind of like a, kind of like a, you know, a crab and goyle to that character's Malfoy, just like dumb, dumb. Dumb uh, heavy. A dumb heavy. A, a dumb heavy. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the award-winning podcast, The Academy Academy, the show that discovers the absolute, undeniable, and scientifically proven greatest performance in your favorite actor's esteemed career. I'm Don Saunderson. I'm Patrick Gremion. Welcome to The Academy, I'm Patrick. Oh, what a feeling we got this week. Oh, man. Uh, we are entering into the Visionary Alliance. Uh, Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer digression Ooh, <laughs> the psychedelic like uh trip to get a better idea of the scene the scott brothers were entering upon uh kind of main entering mainstream movie making in the late 70s early 80s you really can't avoid the works of don simpson and jerry brockheimer um as a kid um when i saw their movies in the early 90s they're mm-hmm. You know, um, their logo with the thunderstorm. Oh yeah, coming down. I knew, like, even as like a ten year old, I was like, I have a good idea what kind of movie I'm getting. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, the, the treats are coming for for ten year old dog. I do. One of my most played DVDs as a youth was Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Just like, which is in some ways, I feel like Armageddon is like the like the peak. Of extravagant, at least not until, until pirates, I guess. You can it's make an peak, argument for pirates. It's peak Bruckheimer solo at the like the very mm. peak of his powers, I think. That's post, yeah, it's definitely post, post. Simpson. None no, like, of that Simpson. I remember, like, weirdly enough, like 1995 when Don Simpson died because Whoa. I knew like their names in front of all of these movies that my dad had on all the damn time. <laughs> and, and it they were just like, they were kind of ubiquitous and they were just, they were also, you know, in the same vein, there's all these arguments about Disney and Marvel movies and kind of rehashing that kind of stuff today. They were the death of movie going makers of their time interesting uh, coming out of the 70s coming out of the new hollywood coming out of like perhaps the greatest period of director control um the in hollywood history we ended up with you know kind of a different a much different time period and uh to quote um don simpson oh no uh, about some of this Simpson said about his uh, 
management style. They refuse to cede power to directors or stars. We're not only hands-on, but feed-on. We don't take a passive role in any shape or form. Some directors, who shall remain nameless, do regard movies as an extension of their internal emotional landscape. But Jerry and I decide on the movie we want to make. We then hire an all-star team who can implement the vision. I don't believe in the auteur theory. The movie is the auteur. It tells us what it needs to be. We're here to serve the movie as mistress. No one person, director, or writer is above the call of the final result. That is our first Don Simpson quote of this week. We will be hearing from Don many times over over the next few months. My Um, eyes rolled into my head after feed on my. This is a direct uh, quote from the book High Concept Don Simpson and the Hollywood Culture of Excess by Charles Fleming. It is out of print, but if you can find it, I found a $5 copy and it was worth every dollar of that $5. Oh my God. (laughs) Uh, to learn about Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. So let's get into it. Let's talk about our guys. Oh, the boys. Well, I don't think we want to take necessarily credit for them, especially Don Simpson. (laughs) But (laughs) we will start with Don Simpson. Donald Clarence Simpson, born October 29th, 1943 in Seattle, Washington. Get out of here. Um, Producer, screenwriter, actor, um, born in Seattle, Washington, son of a housewife and a Boeing mechanic, he then moved to Alaska fairly early on in his life. His parents were strict Baptists who would make him go to church all the time. Um, he declared himself a straight-A Bible student, but this is he also declared himself like in trouble with the street gangs of Alaska and one of the greatest ladies' men in his hometown. Uh, by all accounts, though, he was a fairly middle of the road average kid. Um, he's he's, he's Gatsbying a little bit. Well, you know, he wants to create this narrative around himself, and this is it's a wish fulfillment narrative mm-hmm. that he could never fulfill. This is kind of his appetite and his no sense of a ceiling kind of um you know led to, you know where he went and you know and within his films too because in essence if you look at the main ones he produced especially Flashdance, Top Gun, Days of Thunder and to an extent the Beverly Hills Cop films these are orphans creating a family by being awesome in every single one of them. I I will say too that like I noticed this in these two movies uh, you couldn't make the same argument for for Beverly Hills Cop, but like, there's a certain type of guy that he casts in his movies for the most part, and they kind of look like, especially when you see that picture of Don Simpson, like in later years, when he mm. has those big eyebrows and like he's had the work done. These guys yeah. kind of look like what Don probably wanted to be <laughs> a little yeah. bit. Yeah, well, I think you know he he didn't want to be he wanted to look like tom cruise was his like dream scenario Mm. but you know but all he there was something that was deeply unfulfilling about his youth and it led him on a reckless rampage to try and um find some level of satisfaction and happiness um but as we'll find out this is that is easier said than done for mr simpson um he ended up going to the university of oregon and then upon graduation, 
went and worked as kind of bounced around and worked as a ski instructor in Utah, even. Oh, and finally, bad. finally ended up in Hollywood. Uh, got a job doing some marketing at Warner Brothers in the early 70s. Apparently handled distribution and marketing for th- movies even like Woodstock and Clockwork Orange. Mm. And then in the 1975, he got a job with Paramount Pictures where he um, pushed and pushed and pushed and was known as like a guy who was kind of a visionary when it came to production and storytelling and stuff like that. But also, um, I mean, you name it. You, I mean, so people who have been accused, who have had some more jobs to him over the past few years, people like Scott Rudin or Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. he kind of invented it, that entire um, persona. Persona. I, everything from, you know, throwing things to screaming at people to doing rails of cocaine during meetings. Um, he was doing it. He brought them a lot of success, though. Uh, probably his some of his bigger films that he made with Paramount included Officer and a Gentleman, which was kind of a predecessor movie. Officer and a Gentleman and American Gigolo are kind of like the proto Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer styled pictures. Interesting. Style, songs, montage, sexy people, you know, both Richard Gere, I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah. his rise coincided with the rise of... Um, Barry Diller, who was in charge of Paramount Pictures, and Michael Eisner, who was his number two guy. Mm. Um, all of them were these kind of young, business-minded hotshots who basically the second they saw the opportunity to kind of reclaim things from the Francis Coppola's and the Robert Evans of the world, Ooh. they did. And wow. kind of in a more corporate mindset including even michael eisner saying that there would be no paramount movie released that was over 105 minutes just to kind of keep you know i mean that kind of thought process right but that's also why if you flip on uh, amazon prime and go to paramount plus look at some late 70s early 80s to mid 80s paramount movies some real bangers that you can get through (laughs) without you know they they might be a little thin as movies but they're entertaining um and basically, he Simpson worked at Paramount till 1982 because he was fired for passing out during a meeting because of his cocaine use. Uh, <laughs> oh, buddy. Uh, you know, and simultaneously, um, born in September 20, September 21, 1943. So within a month of, um, his partner is Jerome Leon Bruckheimer, mm. born in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, interesting fun fact about him that's Seattle related. He co-owns the NHL hockey team, the Seattle Kraken. Ooh. Adam, at, right now. Adam Muscatel wears that shirt a lot. He's a, Yeah. I mean, it was a very, like, I'll be honest, last Christmas, it was a very hot, easy Christmas gift in the city of Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you're a male friend. I don't know that well. Just take the shirt. <laughs> yeah, just wear the shirt, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, Jerry went to um, the University of Arizona for college, another Pac-12 man, hmm. uh, member of the Zeta Beta Tau fraternity, uh, film buff from an early age, also interested in photography. He started off in Detroit uh, and did a little in New York as well um, as an ad man um, mm, and kind of built it up there. 
working for uh, car companies and even Pepsi. Uh, mm. But he was always kind of interested in cinema. So he ended up uh, coming to Hollywood and produced films like The Culpepper Cattle Company from Philip Kaufman, director of Rising Sun, you might recall. Um, Farewell, My Lovely with Robert Mitchum. And he even, he you know, take a look at He's a producer in Michael Mann's first film, Thief. And uh, he then worked with Paul Schrader on American Gigolo and Cat People, which not only got him noticed in Hollywood, it got him noticed by Don Simpson. And they decided to, after Simpson was unceremoniously fired, Paramount still saw value in Simpson, so they decided to deal with him as an independent producer. Mm -hmm. He joined forces with Jerry Bruckheimer, who had also been gaining steam as an independent producer, to form Simpson and Bruckheimer. They, you know, a lot of people said, you know, their nicknames, a lot of nicknames. Yeah. Uh, the two of them. My, uh, I think our favorite is Mr. Inside, Mr. Outside. Yeah. But the basic concept is that Don Simpson was really, really good at the creative end and the schmoozing end of things. Mm. Jerry Bruckheimer is really, really good at the kind of nuts and bolts. This is how a film gets made kind of items and as their careers progressed Don Simpson flat out said he was very bored with that end of filmmaking and he mm. didn't really care um, thus his lack of appearances actually on the set of films that he was producing oh wow also massive uh, cocaine and, you know just general uh, whirling dervish of issues so um, would as you he say, progressed would you say that like Jerry's kind of like the gallant to Don's goofus, or is Jerry um, like, is no, he dabbling in that world as well? Well, Jerry understood what it meant to be a little elusive, a little mm. polite, you know, polite um, in essence that kind of a um, He understood that it meant to be like, so basically how it's described in high concept. Two men were as different as night and day. Simpson the night, Bruckheimer the day. Mm. Where the burly, barrel-chested Simpson was brash and pugnacious. The slight and slender Bruckheimer was politic and cautious. Simpson admired and coveted friendships with the, quote, creative side of the business, the writers and directors. Bruckheimer was more suited to dealing with producers and line producers, the nuts and bolts men, and women who actually made the movies happen. Throughout their career, Simpson would be the big idea guy, the dreamer. Bruckheimer would be the man who made Simpson's dreams into a reality. At the outset, I was the verbal. Jerry was the look, Simpson once said. If we were painting by numbers, I'd look at the big frame while Jerry filled in all the blanks. And, you know, I mean, obviously that's, that's chaotic. But at the same time, that's actually a perfect match. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jerry... You know, uh, uh, actually, that was the big thing when Simpson passed away was they're like, Jerry's not going to be able to survive on his own. Mm-hmm. He, he, he needs that spark, which, of course, he, you know, we'll talk about it as the weeks progress. But, you know, Jerry had massive post Simpson um, success. So we'll <laughs> we'll get into kind of what like as we review these films and kind of analyze them closer we'll kind of one of the things i think patrick and i are going to be looking at closely is kind of the differences between the simpson bruckheimer era and the bruckheimer era 
and yeah. kind of see if there's a philosophical uh, difference. That's like that's like really fascinating. Yeah, because I think there's definitely are differences. I can't say them off the top of my head because so many of those films I haven't seen in so long. But like even comparing, you know, Armageddon, Pirates of the Caribbean, even like I feel like The Rock did Sims Don Simpson really have a huge like he, by the time they got to The Rock, he was pretty off the deep end. Uh, he, you know. Yeah. And you know, we'll we'll get to that, but it was tough and kind of like the toughest production for them was Days of Thunder, and then it was kind of after that was over, you know. But Jerry saw himself as a protector. He was very loyal to Doc. Interesting. And, um, you know, I mean, he even said, you know, I'm going to protect him in death as in life when, you know, he passed away. And again, you know, regardless of their behavior or whatever, that is kind of the partner he would like to have. Mm-hmm. In the in this, um, you know, especially in this game, um, you know, I mean, in Simpsons personality, you know, get into it here a little bit. You know, he's as brash and provocative and frankly questionable as people get. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he claimed he discovered Michael Mann, launched Deborah Winger's career, launched Richard Gere, claimed the concept for Beverly Hills Cop, which Michael Eisner denied. Um, his uh, first major assistant of Paramount was Jeffrey Katzenberg, who, of course, went on to become a um, bit of a success. I mean, all of the people in this orbit are the most successful people in Hollywood. Yeah. Of the 1980s. Um, and he so he said that. Basically, Simpson would go into meetings and flip out and go as big and crazy as possible. And he called and he called it the next phone call. They had to make the Don Simpson discount factor, DSDF, which was a negotiation to tone down the exaggerations Don Simpson had previously made. (laughs) Uh, You know, and they started like they chose black as their signature color. They got matching Porsches. They had an office with a desk that was shaped like a C, the letter C. Oh, my God. When no one, when they didn't have meetings, they would sit on the opposite sides of the C from each other. But when they did, they'd sit in the center of the C as a united front, staring down whoever came in to talk to them. That's very like, uh, if that, if. I didn't know who those two people were in the lives they led. I would say that's very like stepbrothersy. I would say, yeah. yeah, there's like a weird, yeah. yeah. Do we just become best friends? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's like a crazy, like, that's, that is nuts. And, you know, all the way to like, it will kind of get to, to some of the proclivities, but a fun one to start off with is that Don Simpson would buy a pair of black Levi's 501 jeans and wear them once and then toss them. Don't do that. Over and over and over again. So many jeans wasted. A lot of wasted jeans, my friend. I mean, I got a couple pairs of Levi black jeans. They've lasted me a few years. You know, gain weight here or there. (laughs) But like that, that's like what a weird. I mean, that's a flex. That is a flex. Yeah. So basically, they um, they started their own production company, Simpson Bruckheimer, and they. Basically, they had an idea that they were um, that Simpson in particular was high on, and that of course turned into the film Flashdance, 
um, Simpson, you know, was going into it that he had a strong conviction conviction that they had to have a hit movie central character before triumphing and he had to triumph must be reduced psychologically and almost destroyed before the comeback he called it the pits you got to live down in the pits he'd always say according to <laughs> joe eskerhouse they the basic concept if you have not seen flash dance our first movie that we're going to be covering this week uh, released in 1983, almost 40 years ago, is that a passionate young dancer played by Jennifer Beals dreams of becoming a ballerina. But because she's from more of a blue-collar existence, she works by day in a steel mill and by night in the craziest strip club you have ever seen like in is, the history of cinema. It's not even... Or a, the world. The world, because it, it doesn't just... exist. It's it's a, And that's one of the funny stories, is that basically Jerry Bruckheimer got sent to Pittsburgh after they had written the script to get some details about a flash dance club. And he calls back a couple days later, he goes, I got good news, I got bad news. Bad news is, this place doesn't fucking exist. <laughs> the good news is, this place doesn't fucking exist. <laughs> so they could do whatever they wanted to it be you know it's a complete fantasy film um mm. the film let's get into some statistics here before we get some more details on it directed by adrian line uh final screenplay by tom headley and joe eskerhouse story by uh tom headley produced of course by don simpson and jerry bruckheimer music by giorgio mordor mortar mm. um starring <laughs> uh jennifer beals Michael Nori, um, Lilia Scala, Sonny Johnson, Kyle T. Hefner, leaving, and you know a variety of faces. There weren't a lot of like, oh my! There, the only big person that stuck out who became a star later on was, of course, Arliss, who was at the strip club. Oh, Robert Wall himself. Really? Yes. I did not see that. I, I, I can't lo- believe you missed it because it's in the in the stand up comedy scene. Um, with Richie, he tells like a Steelers joke and they cut to Arliss going like, yeah, that's good. I'm like, yeah, he's a sports agent. Of course he liked that uh, joke. <laughs> I miss young Arliss. I know, I was surprised. Arliss Origins, god damn it. <laughs> the, um, the movie was released on April 15th, 1983. The film was budgeted $7 million. It made $201.5 million at the box office. Crazy. Holy cow. No not, no stars. No stars. Um, low, like, not, like, uh, Mr. High Concept, Don Simpson himself, this is not the, like, I mean, it's, it's not as complicated as the farts. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, um, but it's certainly far more complicated than Top Gun or Beverly Hills Cop in terms of trying to describe what the hell it is. Um, yeah. Nominated for four, count them, four Academy Awards. Oh my God. Best Cinematography for Donald Peterman. Best Film Editing for Bud S. Smith. Walt Mulconnery. I'm sorry, Walt. Um, nominated for two awards in the best original song category arguably the area probably where it should have gotten some noms um of course for maniac mm-hmm. and flash dance what a feeling which won the academy award for best original song um i mean it was wild it got nominated for best motion picture and best actress at the golden globes mm. um 
Also, worst screenplay at the Razzies. Um, it was nominated for Album of the Year at the Grammys for the soundtrack. And just kind of like an absolute sensation. And what's absolutely fascinating about it, too, it actually never um, reached number one at the box office, but was just out forever. And oh. it was always like hung around in like the two, three spot. And it ended up being um, Paramount's biggest hit of the year after Terms of Endearment, another Academy Academy movie. And of course, much to the chagrin of the critics who gave it a 35% on Rotten Tomatoes. Whoa, that's low. That is all very style, low. All style and very little substance. Flashdance boasts eye-catching dance sequences and benefits from an appealing performance from Jennifer Beals. But its narrative is flat-footed. Ebert had it on his list of most hated films. I can see it, that. Yeah, he gave it one and a half out of four. Damn. Jennifer Beals shouldn't feel bad. She has a natural talent. She's fresh and engaging here and only needs to find an agent with the natural talent for turning down scripts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's why he got that's why he got Man Ebert. That's, uh, that's very funny. It's very he, funny. He's, that, that, he's killing it. I love it. Yeah. And he also said if Flashdance has spent just a little more effort getting to know the heroine of its story and a little less time trying to rip off Saturday Night Fever, it may have been a much better film. God damn. I mean, uh, like, good, good. You know, I'm a, I, I, I like I like to imbibe and haterade occasionally, and that's some good haterade. It is. It is. It is quite funny. And. <laughs> You know, back in those days, you could actually do that a little bit more. You got to be a little bit nicer nowadays. Ugh. Uh, ugh. Nice. Nice. Ugh. Gross. Gross. <laughs> Having empathy. Um, in the New Yorker, Pauline Kale was vicious. Oh, no. Oh, get ready. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, I'm ready. I'm about to drown in hater it. Uh, for this picture, the producers have put together a prime collection of rumps. Girls rumps. But small and muscular and round like boys. The picture is a lulling, narcotizing musical. The whole damn thing throbs. It's softcore porn with an inspirational message. And it may be the most calculating, platinum-hearted movie I've ever seen. God damn! God damn! Um, <laughs> according to one reader in the Paramount script department, as it was unreeling, there were glances going around the room. The glances said, what is this piece of shit? <laughs> I mean, said the lights went up. The executive in charge says, well, what do you think? I said, I thought it was appalling. They said, but what do you think about the humor in it? We were all stunned. The humor? There wasn't any humor. Thank you. Wow. Uh, Eisner remained convinced the movie was never going to succeed. Eisner thought Flashdance was going to be the anchor around Don's neck that would take him down to the bottom of the sea. He thought it was a joke. Oh, no. um, absolutely vapid is what the internal people at Paramount said. Um, yet the movie was a massive smash success and a lot of it can be uh attributed to its smash soundtrack mm. and this movie you know i texted patrick um you know my review was it's a movie it's a soundtrack searching for a movie <laughs> yeah a hundred percent well and wasn't this movie like this was like the first time a movie 
that they cut out a portion of a movie and used it as a music video on yes. MTV. Yeah, which and this... I which partially I think helped bolster its success. So basically, it becomes this because simultaneously, this MTV is of course debuting and becoming an absolute sensation with damn kids. Mm-hmm. It's on. They can't stop watching it. So they put the videos for Maniac. They put the vi- videos for oh, What a Feeling, which are filled with clips from Flashdance on every 15 minutes or, you know, half hour or whatever mm-hmm. on MTV. So you're bombarded. It's like um, like the theory I have about the billboards down here for like new TV shows and stuff like that. Yeah, it'll the be more like... you drive around, you keep bumping into things. It's like, huh. Maybe I'll give that one a try. And yeah. at first, you were like, "No, I'm never gonna watch that." <laughs> it's like, I guess I'll watch. Keep, you just keep seeing those ads, and you're like, "Yeah, why not?" You know, I'll, I'll give Brea. <laughs> I'll give Turner the Turner and Hooch reboot a I shot. Yeah, or yeah, and it's like, but was like, "Wow, they're doing a Turner and Hooch reboot, huh?" <laughs> I remember like being in traffic, uh, driving Lyft. It's like 4 p.m. I'm driving a guy to the airport from like van nuys to like lax and i just inevitably i'm on la brea just worst traffic ever and just like just bumper to bumper traffic seeing the turner and hooch sign and like being stuck in front of it for like what felt like seven minutes and it just it felt like it, that sign was sucking my soul away you start to get like weird thoughts on these billboards like i don't know if you remember the now you see me part two billboard oh. it was huge and all of their like all of the people on it and i was like there's so many people it looks like it's gonna tip over <laughs> someone better be careful but, no, i sat in traffic just angry at that like why the fuck didn't they call that movie now you don't yes thank you like i mean i know other people have said that but this is like this is not rocket science don like, and don and jerry what about don and patrick yeah i know exactly we could have we could have saved we could have saved that movie i mean I a, think lot, the wor- a lot less cocaine and prostitution and a lot more uh riffing and spoofs and goofs yeah a lot more goof than, hey our only drug is podcasting all right yeah and a little bit of improv comedy. <laughs> uh, somebody like walks in here, like here, just take some cocaine. <laughs> yeah, please. Here's please. some heroin. Heroin. Yeah, you uh, you would be far less insufferable if you stopped with the improv and started doing heavy drugs. <laughs> I will say the worst, the worst offender, uh, uh, billboard wise as of late for me has been um, seeing every so often I'll see a billboard for uh, it's like a Disney plus another Disney plus billboard. But it's like, you know those like Helvetica shirts. It's like John. It's like a Helvetica shirt with like the Beatle guys, mm-hmm. and it's like John and oh, Ringo and Paul and uh, uh, Paul, George. George, Ringo and freaking Bruno, freaking Bruno. And it's like, fuck, get out of here! Yeah. I hate this. This yeah, makes me. It just makes me. You know, I, the only way it would work for me if they're referring to Br- uh, Bruce Willis's alter ego. Well, I tell you this, man. I saw it and I drove right into that fence that the billboard was on because I got so excited about it. I was like, whoa! Bruno's back with the Beatles, no less! <laughs> the return of Bruno. <laughs> what a ruse that would be if Willis was just, like, going back to his music career. <laughs> well, I'd be, I mean, let's hope. Let us hope. Not I know. I, I would love... Oh, my God. That would be beautiful. Welcome back. Welcome back. I, I hope he's doing well. I love the guy. Yeah, um, we did too. Uh, yeah. So the film, Adrian Line, who mm-hmm. we brought up earlier on the show, who was a RSA tried and true member. Oh, huge. Um, you know, he had already directed by this point. 
um, a couple short films and a film called Foxes from 1980, which has got uh, Jodie Foster and Scott Bale in it. Kind of a coming of age drama. Okay. Um, but he was not the first choice for Flashdance. Oh, I saw this. Oh, I can't wait. They went to a couple other directors who one you maybe the other. Uh-uh. Oh, no. <laughs> they uh, went to the ultra-hot David Cronenberg, who said, no thanks. They also went to Cronenberg for Top Gun, apparently. <sighs> I don't know. Like, Simpson and Bruckheimer were like, yeah, he's the guy. It's like, this guy? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> uh, but they also um, pitched Brian De Palma on it, and uh, he chose to do Scarface instead. Mm. Um, Adrian Lyne, though, they they thought, you know, his flashiness, his commercial style would end up being probably the right choice for it. Uh, interesting, funny story, though. He really turned it down quite a few times. Ooh. The script was not. Everyone agrees the script was not good. Like, not nobody, good. like, everyone who made it, you know, it's pretty much down the line. Everybody was like, this. This ain't this ain't the Philadelphia story or something like that. Yeah, this is, yeah, we're not uh we're, we're not making Doctor Zhivago. Yeah, and um, <laughs> so he apparently though, at the last minute was looking, scanning, searching for anything to give a little more depth to the Aww. story. So he at the last minute said he wasn't going to do the movie unless they created a subplot in which it was revealed that Alex Jennifer Beale's character had been molested as a child by her father and that's what led to this um, yeah, i don't okay. know okay okay i mean no so i mean i guess i, I his heart his heart's kind of in the right place but it's so like simpson, simpson bruckheimer esker house and line decamped to las vegas to work out this script idea why las vegas for guys of this inclination oh no well, I, we know why. Yeah, we know why. We know <laughs> Apparently, why. they all had their own suites, full suites. And Simpsons had a hot tub in the living room that he would give his grip notes on to the rest of the crew while sitting in his hot tub smoking scars and doing coke. God damn it. Like living the absolute cliche completely of it all. Um, but they finally talked Adrian Line out of it. Simpsons' um, belief that that just wasn't like... It had to be the glossiest, shiniest, easiest to take down, least existential movie mm. possible in Simpsons' mind. A clear cut of a story of a triumph, a happy ending. The mm. other thing I noticed, too, is Simpson was a huge fan of, and he tried to get this in, is a freeze frame to end the movies. And do you mm. remember both Beverly Hills Cops, I think Top Gun, and this one all end with like a... Yeah. You know? <laughs> or Thief of Hearts, too. Yeah, Thief of Hearts as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, so they finally had that down. And they, had, they of course, had to um, had to cast their titular flash dancer, mm. uh, Alex. Alex Owens. The three candidates were the three finalists for the role. Jennifer Beals, Demi Moore, and Leslie Wing. Mm. There are two stories that exist as to why Jennifer Beals was chosen. Both of them are dumb. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> Both of them, gross. Oh, I'll no. Share them, share them with you now. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, one s states that then 
Paramount president Michael Eisner asked all of the women secretaries at Paramount at the studio to select their favorite of the the most relatable of the three. Mm. The other, shared by Joe Eskerhouse, who has nothing to lose, so I believe it. Gulp, <laughs> uh, gulp, gulp. All right, so I apologize if this offends anyone. No. Eisner asked the 200 most macho dudes, the Teamsters, the Gaffers, and the Grips on the Paramount lot to into a room and had the three actresses picture up. And he asked them, I want to know which one of these women you want to fuck the most. Oh, come on, Michael Eisner. Gross. Brody, Eisner, Eisner, get out of here with that. Yeah, the wonderful world of Disney, my ass. Mickey (laughs) Mickey Mouse is sullened. Yeah, Mickey Mouse. Ugh, gross. But also gross. The part of Nick Hurley, the male lead, offered to originally to Gene Simmons of Kiss. Whoa. Weird. <laughs> Who turned it down because it would conflict with his demon image. <laughs> Although this movie, if he had been wearing his Kiss makeup the entire way through, there would have been a satisfying element to this Kiss fan, at least. <laughs> I mean, it would be interesting. Um, choice. A few of the other actors that were discussed or looked at included Pierce Brosnan, Robert De Niro, Richard Gere, Mel Gibson, Tom Hanks, John Travolta. You'll probably hear some combination of those names for the rest of this season. Yeah. (laughs) As people who are thought of for these parts. Um, Kevin Costner came really close to getting it, apparently. He was uh, just emerging at the time. But it went to Michael Norrie who um, the only other movie that I really know him from is The Hidden with Kyle MacLachlan, a cool sci-fi horror movie. Um, but not really the most, you know, known guy Mm-mm. in the world. Um, so then they, they went to Pittsburgh, shot a lot on location. Interesting thing here is that um, apparently the dimly lit cinematography and montage style editing a huge part of it was because they needed to shoot around Jennifer Beale's dancing body double. Oh, wow. And uh, to not show her, basically show her face. And did you know the part where she break dances at the end is um, done by male dancer Crazy Legs, <laughs> professional oh. break dancer. And you could tell. You could, yeah. tell, you could tell it was a dude. <laughs> yep, it was definitely like, oh, that's not that, her body. This is a yeah. different, this is clearly, it's almost like a, not as bad as, not as egregious as the fan, but pretty close. Actually, and, maybe more egregious than the fan. I think it I guess, she, so she had a whole bunch of different doubles. None of them were credited um, in the credits because they, she, they were told, don't want to break the magic uh. of the film. Um. Yeah, and so basically, yeah, as we mentioned, story of Alex, 18-year-old welder at the steel mill in Pittsburgh. It's the lava factory. It's the T2 so, yeah. lava factory. T2 lava. It looks like hell. It looks like she's like literally in hell, which I don't <laughs> think is a like uh, accident for Adrian Line. She dreams and aspires of becoming a uh, professional dancer, but she has no formal dance training. Yeah. So at nights, she worked nightly at a cabaret called Mobby's. Which is um, simultaneously a like sports bar and grill, and one of the most <laughs> elaborately designed strip clubs you will ever see in your entire I, life. It, it, this is a classic Pittsburgh trope, right? Like, uh, you uh, know, cl- I mean, it's classic, yeah. Pits- classic like the, Pittsburgh. Yeah, like the towel at Steelers games, uh, French fries on your sandwich, and and, really, and blue collar guys going out to watch 
you know, I kept saying to Jen, I just wanted them to cut to Arliss at least once go, yeah, too arty. Yeah. <laughs> nah, see, I want the opposite. I want, like, hey, this is evocative of Vincent yeah. Minnelli. I know, and there's this, yeah, so then there's this bizarre other rival strip club called Zenzibar. Oh, um, nearby, with run by just gross dudes. Yeah. Kind of like show the opposite side of the, the family oriented strip club. Yeah, but just like two Roger Klotzes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it kind of like, so this was my first time I ever saw Flashdance. Somehow I missed the zeitgeist on Flashdance. Oh, same. Yeah. Um, it is um, it is an empty vessel. <laughs> it is a name. Yeah. It is like as simplistic as a movie gets. Like they, and they don't have any like, you know, like Top Gun. They surround like the young pretty faces with like Tom Skerritt, James Tolkien, and mm. uh, Michael Ironside. You imagine Michael Ironside had been like the manager of Mobbies? Would have added like a little bit of spice. Am yeah, I right? exactly. Uh, or like yeah, or if James Tolkien. Yeah, just any of these gu- like guys and gals, these like top of the line character actors that mm. they ended up getting, and that you know maybe that's the Tony Scott touch. Yeah, is that he could recognize the need for that kind of thing, but. You know, it's kind of, they're unrecognized, but it's weird. Like, it, it's, it's a wild movie. I couldn't believe that part where her friend was ice skating and the dad and her dad was just ripping into her. It's crazy. It's cra- they, Deeply crazy. It, everything is at a 10 in this movie. The best and most nuanced performance in the film, I would say, by a wide margin, is by Jumbo Red, who played the role of Grunt, <laughs> the dog. I love Grunt. Grunt is yeah. good. Grunt is great. Yeah, um, it's it's so it, it, it's so weird. The romance seems completely shoehorned and like unbelievable. That's ins- yeah, because like you know, you can look at the stuff on paper. The end IRL that's bad. Like just the fact that like Michael Nori is definitely like twice Jennifer Beals' age. Oh yeah, he's like a thousand times older than her. Yeah, he's like. <laughs> 40 and she's like 18 or something like that or he's 38 or something but then on top of that it is just like you don't really see they never really build any it's almost like as weird as the top gun like romance between tom cruise and uh um uh i think like kelly mcgillis sorry there's like the and i this might come okay so don simpson was never married Mm-hmm. He searched his entire life for some sort of connection like that, but apparently, mm. like when he started dating, he was like deathly afraid of rejection, and he was nervous. He apparently put out a personal ad, well, at the peak of his fame, because he was just look. But he all so basically, like his greatest relationships he ever had were with um sex workers. He was huh. and. So a deathly lonely man who I don't think understood necessarily that level of personal connection. Mm. And so if you think about the romance in this, the romance of Top Gun, the complete sexlessness of Beverly Hills Cop 1 and 2. And then we'll get to the ultra strange Nicole Kidman, Tom Cruise relationship in Days of Thunder in a few weeks here <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's almost all of them and I, even jerry bruckheimer tries to really like force it in with armageddon and um pearl harbor and um 
what what's the other one? Con Air. Mm, the, yeah. The, you know, and that kind of thing. He's like, but it's also like there seems to be an element to them where it's like we need this because it'll put female butts in the seats in their minds. Yeah. Not because we actually care about it or feel it has any meaning. Yeah, it's crazy when you say all of those movies, the only like romantic thing I can think of is Iceman and um Mav. Or yeah. I or Mav and Goose. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. much th- that or like, you know, I guess you could but even like what's second place? Like Liv Tyler and Ben Affleck yeah. throwing animal crackers on her belly or whatever. It it's all like 13-year-old boys, like, even, like, the jokes about George Lucas not, never having been on a date based on the the second Star Wars prequel. Yeah. <laughs> Me cute. Like, <laughs> and it is, like, that exists, like, because, I mean, they've, again, my overall thesis for a lot of this season is that um, when a nerd, a smart, clever, interesting, charismatic nerd is given power, Especially in a place like Hollywood, in which there are ample opportunities to abuse the power and dabble in illicit areas. Mm. How do you respond? And for the most part, it's poorly. (laughs) Yeah, especially if you are someone who's insecure, like Don. Like, I think that's like a lot of it too is like it feels like so much of like this and uh especially like thief of hearts thief of hearts feels like like weird wish fulfilled like i wish i was this cool suave robber man well yeah and that's like his male leads in almost everyone i mean whether it's maverick whether it's axel foley whether it's the wonderfully named cole trickle in days of thunder (laughs) um or uh the thief of hearts himself <laughs> Something Moeller, Steve Scott, Moeller, Scotty, Scotty Moeller, Scotty Moeller, um, <laughs> Scotty Appleton. <laughs> Stealing makes my. But it's. So I think it, it's like it's interesting because like, I just like there's some really neat like there's this great wide shot of Jennifer Beals and um the genie, her friend, her poor mm-hmm. friend. Um, oh man, yeah. But it, it really like. Sonny Johnson played her, and I thought she popped. I thought she was really pretty and kind of had like an interesting quality about her. She had an interesting arc. She had more yeah. of an arc than I Alex. feel like. Yeah. <laughs> um, she died in 1984, a year later of a brain hemorrhage at 30. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, this was her last film. And I mean, she's briefly in um, Animal House and Where the Buffalo Roam. But, um, you know, she popped. I want to know who she was. And um, mm-hmm. and I was really bummed. Like that's always like the wild thing about watching old movies. You're like, oh man, I've never seen them before. They're really interesting. Then you find <laughs> out they're like they they're gone. Yeah. Or, or even that like, you know, I, I always tell the story when I watched Over the Edge and they had all these cool young actors and you look them up. Oh, they're all sixty now. Like, <laughs> yeah. Or it was so like when we saw um, what was that uh movie we saw in the mall the mall kill like the chop oh chopping mall chopping mall that was so interesting because all those people were like only in a couple of movies tops but the the, like the beautiful thing when like when we saw the q a for chopping mall was all the guests who showed up and like the like the joy that they had in like saying hi to each other and like giving each other hugs and like greeting each other you could tell it's like 
okay, you know, their careers, they didn't turn out to be Tom Cruise. They didn't turn out to be Demi Moore. But they had a really good summer. Yeah. They made Chopping Mall. <laughs> they, had, they all seemed to have a fun, chill time. Yeah, they had a really good prop, a really good time. That And, you know, so that doesn't take away from anything, but it is just interesting to kind of, like, watch a film like this with all these people who you had never, didn't really know very well, and it's like, oh, man, they all have kind of, like, live their lives and you know jennifer beals and michael nori still work but pretty much everyone else has kind of gone in different directions you know some kyle t hefner uh who plays uh richie the uh would-be stand-up comic oh man his his uh, laugh oh my goodness you know they gave him the right hat put it that way uh, <laughs> his character it, you know it worked for what it was but it's it is just really interesting because it's just this kind of like Flimsy, mawkish, kind of lame movie, but because it was such a cultural touch point in this one year, 1983, it has stuck around completely. It's a wisp of a movie, but like, yeah, it's like, and you look at like how it affected, like, you know, people wore the the sweater that Jennifer Beals, yeah. It, it it was and then it like made like sexy fitness cool because the insane weightlifting scene that they do that scene is so you could just take that out of the movie and it wouldn't affect the movie at but any i mean there's like this part i was gonna tell like the, my favorite part in the movie was like the back-to-back sequences of um when they break run into the break dancers and that big wide shot oh, with the break dancers part. pop and lock it's like very like alive and there's like it's got kind of a documentary feel to it like it's just like you're kind of there, and then when um, she harasses the dancing cop, I thought that was really. I thought that like there was like those are the only like moments in the movie that didn't feel so like pre-designed. Well, like I think like there are like aspects of the film I appreciate. Like I think like the film was like shot in Pittsburgh, and there are elements of it that feel. Pittsburghian yeah. for better for worse. I'm not saying like it entirely does, but like you know, you look at the cast. A lot of those people are not super popular because they're actually from like Locals. around Pennsylvania. They're yeah. local guys, and like for um all of the movie's flaws, and it has a lot of flaws. And like especially like, the first doesn't, time... doesn't overstay its welcome. That's, yeah, that's a positive. Yeah. minutes. Yeah, that's true. And I will say, like, the first half hour of the movie, I'm definitely not as mad as I was, like, with the first half hour of the movie. Like, I think I texted Don, yeah. like, this is, like, like... This movie's a stinker. Yeah, this movie's <laughs> a stinker. I was, I was, I was really shooting some fire. But then, uh, not as good as our boy Ebert. Well, but, uh... there was, like, one part, though, in the first, like, when, uh, Michael Nori and his co-worker first come into the Flash Mobbies and watch her do her fit dance, which is like her most famous one. It's where she does the like drops the bucket of water on herself. Oh yeah. Chair. Um there's this entire like we're so used to storytelling. It's like, oh, she's gonna come to work the next day and it's gonna be like she's gonna get some shit and be in trouble for moonlighting like this. Nobody at work cares. No. At all. And that's like a missed drama opportunity. Like to show that the world is up against her completely. But like it's weird. Like the steel mill is just a prop. Oh, totally. Than, like, any level of like, ca- like peace to her character. At all. Well, like what is like, what does a blue collar person do? Oh, they work in a steel mill. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and it's also like, it, they do like build up for potential drop. Well, cause like, doesn't like at one point, one of the like 
you know, steel mill goons, like, share, like, her social security number with the... I don't know if that was a joke or, like... But it doesn't matter. None of it yeah, matters. Exactly! That's the thing! It's, like, it's There's so... that part where she runs into Nori with his ex-wife. Doesn't matter. Yeah! When, when um, Jenny falls down, Jeannie falls down ice skating, it's a huge bummer, and there's actually a very warm moment with her and her father where he puts his arm around her, and then she ends up working at Lee Ving's horror show of the Zanzibar. Um, doesn't matter. Nah, it's... And I thought she was going to be like the goose of the story. Mm-hmm. Don Simpson 101 storytelling. Kill. Kill an innocent. Yeah. To, well... to, to prove, the, you know. I thought her or uh, Richie were toast. I thought that scene where they went after her when Richie was walking her to the car, I thought they were going to kill Richie. Oh, yeah. Well, the and Johnny's like built up as the psychopath. Like, he's... It's weird because like nothing really happens. She dances for the insane, like, straight out of like a Twisted Sister music video dance academy. It's so crazy. They're and like it... tapping their feet and bouncing around to what a feeling. And you're just like, what? And the guy smoking the cigar, and they're skeptical of verse, but like, uh, 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 we're actually like, you have to expect them to like start like grinding on each other because they're like old people getting their groove back or something like that. Yeah, I mean, like, and we don't, I, but we don't even find out if she makes it. She just does well. Yeah, I, my theory about this movie is it's like a if you're like a young kid, like this is like she's kind of living like this ultimate fantasy life where like. She lives in this cool warehouse. She has like she's, a pet dog. She's gorgeous. She's got these great clothes. Yeah. You know, like, and she's got a great group of girlfriends. Oh, we forgot about heels. I love the third friend who doesn't get as much, but occasionally I like see, I know she's named Heels, because at a certain point, she has a necklace that oh, just has yeah, heels. She's got the necklaces, heels. Yes. I, yeah, rules. I, I love that. Yeah, give a shout out to Durga McBroom who plays Heels. And and let's give a shout out to Cynthia Rhodes who plays Tina Tech. Oh well. yeah, she has a fun scene too. Uh, like, pretty good gang. They 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 make the most of it. They don't have much to do, but they make the most. They make an impression. Um, but I mean, this movie made an impression. It was huge. And I gotta say, like the opening credit sequence where she's riding her bike to what a feeling does kind of get you a little like, what what are we where are we gonna go here? This is gonna be fun. Yeah, this and could I, work. This could work. This could work. This yeah. could work. And it probably does. We're probably just being hard on it. And we've probably <sighs> Don Simpson would come out of the grave and like after he like he up with a dildo or something. <laughs> yeah, God. <laughs> uh, he'd 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 say, "You're not supposed to fucking think. You're supposed to enjoy yourself and look at the pretty people." Yeah, like, oh, you're you're probably right, Don. Um, not impressed with this movie. Don Simpson's parents. Oh. Um, Man. after the movie open, another Esker House anecdote. <laughs> Simpson received a Bible from his mother. It, in it was a note. If you read and study this book, you will never make another movie like that again. So, for all of his behavior, that can have an effect on you. If yeah. you've grown up with that con- that kind of thing constantly. And you're a creative type with a big imagination like he was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, I find him more sad than I do, like, anger or villainy, even mm-hmm. though he is a villain. But I find him a tragic villain because yeah. he, he he didn't have anyone to turn to and tell him to calm down. He didn't have anyone to turn to him and say, like, you know. 
stay tight, you know, control yourself. Like, and it was just a big rebellion, which is, again, goes back to the thesis of nerds run amok. Yeah. Um, it's, and it is, you know, it is what it is. And we'll, we'll, we'll get there, continue with Don's story as the season progresses. But, you know, they're walking into this. I mean, this is their first production as a duo. Mm hmm. And it's a smash cultural sensation. And of course, their next film was Beverly Hills Cop. And it was just hit after hit after hit. But was Beverly Hills Cop their next film? No, it was not. Mm-hmm. You think you know. You think you know the Simpson Bruckheimer filmography. <laughs> but to our listeners out there, are they aware of Thief of Hearts from 1984? One year after Flashdance, released October 19th, 1984. You might not be. The erotic drama film. That's one <laughs> way of putting it. Written and directed by Douglas Day Stewart. Produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, Tom Jacobson, and Don Simpson. Cinematography by Andrew Laszlo. It does have a great look. Mm-hmm. Music by, get this, Harold Faltermeyer, our good friend uh, of the Beverly Hills. Axe left, don't. Oh my gosh. Um, budgeted eight million, made ten point four million at the box office, not their highest. Mm-hmm. Um this is the, this might be Academy Academy first, Patrick. Has a zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I, I saw that and I on one hand I I sort of get it, but on the other hand it's like there wasn't one soul that didn't appreciate this movie. Got a Razzie nomination for worst score. Uh, wrong. Rude. 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 The soundtrack. Rude. The soundtrack pops as hard as the the other soundtracks. It slaps. <laughs> it's it is of its time, but it's a slapper. Yeah, it's like a, yeah, it's a banger. Vincent Camby of the New York Times called it a good romantic suspense film at its best. It has some of the steaminess of Lawrence Kasdan's Body Heat, although a few important plot twists don't stand careful scrutiny uh, yeah Vincent, i mean it, that's been pretty kind yeah um, i was gonna say yeah, i saw body heat very recently uh vincent what are you just saying body heat is a vastly superior film yeah it's a yeah <laughs> it's a good it's a yeah i mean i guess they both have that sleaze camp though i guess yes yeah uh, i mean body heat though is essentially double indemnity with nudity yes so, <laughs> i mean for like you know and ted dancing yeah and ted dancing <laughs> in, in a uh, weird wig in my uh my book wins. <laughs> Put those in the plus category. <laughs> get, get, get him away from that baby. Put him Ted in that. Dan- Ted Danson and Will Ben Bill Hurts buns. We'll take it. <laughs> uh, only flop from Simpson and Bruckheimer in their early days. Um, Simpson, in his usual way, this is one of the funnier lines. He described the director. <laughs> Douglas Day Stewart. A man with nice hair. He should probably stick to writing. (laughs) It's so funny because he's the guy who did the Blue Lagoon, right? Yeah. And, Mm. um, you know, another guy in the kind of um, Paramount universe, he wrote um, Officer and a Gentleman as well, which is probably put him in the in the circle. Oh, interesting. uh, Within the Don Simpson world in particular. Um. Film stars, um, our good friend Manny from Scarface, Stephen Bauer as mm. Scott Muller, 
Barbara Williams is Mickey Davis. John Getz is Ray Davis. Oh man, David Caruso. Forget this. I didn't even not know this was his name. Buddy Calamara. What? What? Good name. Good name. <laughs> and uh, George Went is in the mix as Marty Morrison. Marty Morrison. Ooh, I love him. Basic plot line: Scott Muller, Stephen Bauer, expert cat burglar, who has teamed up with his buddy, 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 buddy. Yes, Calamara, buddy, buddy. <laughs> who is a valet at a high society restaurant. They got a great scheme going. So basically, Buddy will park the car. Mm. of some rich couple or rich guy or whatever then the second the car is parked because he has an idea of how long dinner takes mm-hmm. he will and he will call Stephen Bauer and Stephen Bauer will go to that couple's house and rob them blind pretty mm. good scheme it's a good me. yeah it's a good I, scheme. there's here's one thing I'm going to say about this movie is that the pieces are there I think you could potentially had they moved them around a little bit well, it's because everyone in this movie is weird. Yeah. And, like, that makes it kind of off, just in general. Yeah, everything's um, skewed. Yeah. And so one night on one of these um, crimes, Scott, in addition to robbing a bunch of weird modern art and everything like that, yeah. um, this house, he's robbing the house of Mickey and Ray Davis. He discovers the diaries of Mickey. And he takes those two. And also, we gotta say too, he also takes a giant portrait of a... that fits in his closet. <laughs> Just but not barely. well. I mean, not... like, boy, imagine like put, hanging up that coat and be like, "Oh shit, I got this huge portrait. <laughs> She's gonna catch me." <laughs> no, no, yeah, that was a classic. Oh no. <laughs> and the diaries are naturally because this is an erotic thriller, all formed of her dissatisfaction with her nerd ass cartoonist children's writer husband. Yeah, his fucking Garfield riding ass. Yeah, his Gar Jim Davis ass. Yeah. <laughs> he is uh, he is just a Jim Davis. Um and <laughs> this movie would be so much better. Scott is a weird like so David Caruso like he comes in swinging with a lot of David Caruso expectations. Yeah. He's a scumbag. Yeah. He brings in a lot of sex workers. He does a ton of coke. Slimy sleazy. You know you but you know what you're getting. You know yeah. you know what you signed up for. Scott, on the other hand, are you is he like a sensitive guy who wants out of the game? What's his deal? Well yeah. this, is, this is this is the hundred minute question of the entire movie is what's Scott's deal. <laughs> is it ever is it ever really answered? No. No, there's a moment because he gets to reading these like diaries and every time he reads it. It gets a little weirder. Every time he reads the diary, he's like in a different place yeah. where he's doing some like at one point he's like pouring himself a glass of wine and eating a chicken salad. It's it's absolutely <laughs> utterly bizarre. It's all so of it. Crazy. All of it. And so he Scott uses his inside knowledge. So Mickey is an interior designer or an up and coming interior designer mm-hmm. or or a rich lady looking for a hobby. Yeah. You decide. You you decide. Yeah, based on the uh, McDonald's play, pay, place ask design of Muller's house. Like, no, it's hip. We got some glass bricks and neon. It's 1984. Yeah, it looks <laughs> yeah, looking like a fucking old 90s Taco Bell. So 
under the pretext of someone needing a redesign for his apartment and being very impressed with their designs. Oh, he's a, he's a school supply company CEO. That's his cover. Crazy. Crazy. That's insane. What a choice. I love it. I truly love it. This weird man. And so Mickey is like, man, this guy, he's a hunk. And John Getz is not bringing it, man. He is not no. bringing the heat. He is instead acting to spend all of his time writing children's books or playing racquetball with George Went. <laughs> yes, torturing George Went. <laughs> this is like, this is like, what do you just want to get some schlub to beat at racquetball <laughs> to make yourself feel like more of a man? Assuming it's like the Muse, where like, <laughs> yeah, with Jeff Bridges is playing with uh, Albert Albert Brooks. It's like that's the kind of hunk. Non-hunk quotient we're talking about. Here. Yeah, and I love. Oh my God, I will say I love John Getz's. He's like an actor. I wish he got more like roles because he he. I love his energy. He has a weird. He's like a he's like a proto Scoop McNary. Well, what I like about him is like he's either gonna like happily get cucked, or he's gonna like pull a Dustin Hoffman in Straw Dogs and kill. Um. Scott and David Caruso. Yes, he is like <laughs> it's like uh, one or the other. <laughs> yeah, he's he is either like cuck the cuck or the cuck, or the hillbilly that's gonna murder you. There like, is this amazing scene that Douglas Day Stewart tortures George Wentworth, where it's like a rainy day. The glass uh, is clearly grass is clearly slicked. John gets made George Went play tennis this time around. Yes, <laughs> they're like talking about the situation while walking up. A very steep hill that, like both Patrick and I, guarantee would be winded by the time we got to the rolling down the hill, both of us. <laughs> George Getz is taking it pretty well, but George went was clearly like, "I do not want to go up this hill. It is slippery. I am tired, but I'm going to have a pro, so I'm going to act my way through it." It's a stunning scene. It's a stunning like bit of real life coming it's into like, the thing. It, it, it's it has like the way his knees are like bent the way he's like almost like two-legged crab walking up he this is, hill he is thinking so hard about not slipping and falling backwards down he, that hill he is a man who does not want to die yeah i know he wants to live he, but he's, he's a pro so it's not totally affecting his acting but his physical acting he's like as rigid as it gets yeah his, his voice never quivers quite or wavers he's like leonardo dicaprio crossing a ravine in the Re revenant <laughs> <laughs> Except it's, uh, oh, you know, I had problems, like, I was like, are we in D.C.? Are we in New York? Oh, San Francisco, of course. Yeah. Like, it was like, it was impossible to tell for a while. Oh, totally. I thought we were in, I because I knew, I feel like we brought up that it was in San Francisco at a certain point, but I legit did not remember until uh, the, he gets on his bike motorcycle and there's a huge ass, like, steep hill. And I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, San Francisco, that's where we're at. But so they, um. So, uh, you know, Scott is trying to warm his way into Mickey's pants just mm. nonstop. Meanwhile, David Caruso, I don't know if it's a cocaine or what. It's like, where you been? Why are you do Why are we doing the same way? You trying to walk away on me? It's like, well, like Scott, because we haven't seen this one moment of Scott ever say like, no, I'm getting out. No, he's just interested in sleeping with this rich lady. There's yeah. no like. He doesn't want to change being a robber. 
No, like he basically it's like the script needs David Caruso to be unhinged here. So Steve comes off as Stephen Bauer comes off as like the more like normal Except guy. Except he's not normal at all. No! He is unhinged. He is like he's... a crazed stalker. Uh, and, all... But they're trying to make him like this sexy, cool guy. And like, no, he's mm-hmm. not. He is not intriguing. No, he is not enticing. No. And the thing about Iz is like he just kind of wears Mickey down. It's not she's just like and John Getz is such a nerd. Yeah. But she like and that brings me to like Barbara Williams, who I, I actually like the further away I get from this movie, but in the moment I was very like, Who are you? Where did you come from? She <laughs> um, she I like her. I wish I liked um, her in the movie though. I actually do like her in the movie. She's good. I think she's good. <laughs> I kinda well, cause she has like an every like she does feel like you know, like you kind of feel like there are Danielle Steele vibes from this movie. It does feel like a, like a, like a kind of like I did. I did like a Becky Feldman's uh, podcast recently, where like you read like these yeah. very uh, the romance know, novel, yeah, erotic romance, and this felt like like a, a lesser version of one of those. Like we a should, week... we should we should have made Becky watch this movie. Speaking oh of which, my former god, Becky Feldman, Becky Feldman, her podcast. And I, have going... ima- I have imagined she would have some thoughts on this film. <laughs> oh, for sure, I would love to see her take on this because it... that was you the know... funniest thing about this movie is like you and I both had the same reaction. Was I want to share this movie? With everyone I know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Too Stupid to Live is the name of her podcast, mm-hmm. by the way. But uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, I'm with you. It's like such a weird, bizarre, and, like, yeah. Yeah, and it's just kind of like, so we've got these like separate plot lines. John mm-hmm. Gatz is the concerned to the point of jealous husband. Mm-hmm. David Caruso is the concerned to the point of jealous crime partner <laughs> it's, it's like oh my god you're right it is like oh i would say that part where they they stake out the school supply company and go on the roof i was like went is dead went is dead caruso's oh, gonna yeah. kill him. <laughs> gonna get him but like caruso is like the the he's like the scorned lover or whatever he's yeah, like he's stephen like the jo- yeah he's stephen bowers john gets that's crazy yeah, <laughs> yeah crazy because this movie's so this leads to so like it takes about an hour. We know that the two of them are mm-hmm. going to get it on. Oh yeah, no point. But it takes like an hour to get there. A lot oh, of, a lot of setup, a lot of saxophone, well, a lot of like a lot steamy, gaslighting, <laughs> steamy, yeah, steamy, steamy boat trips. Yeah, and, and we know that this movie is like open-minded because early on, David Caruso set up Stephen Bauer with a sex worker, and they have a very explicit sex scene. <laughs> You're like, oh. We're we're like heading toward like some craziness here. This movie's gonna get crazy. Did I think though that the first time she visits Stephen Bauer's apartment and finds a gun, they're gonna talk about the necessity of having a gun. And then (laughs) they're going to jump cut to the gun range fast. Like it's a fast jump cut. It's insane. And he shows her how to shoot the gun. She's into it. And as she's firing the gun, he starts to undress her and like feel her up. It is the craziest seduction scene I think I've ever seen. Yeah, you're like, what is happening? It Whoa. is yeah, what like... a choice. You're like blown away by it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's very yeah, it's just this is like I it's like a steamy fantasy 
erotic thriller, but they don't quite understand like what the steamy, fantasy is. It, but written by a nerd screenwriter, yes, who's never had an experience. Sorry, Douglas Day Stewart. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sure an officer and a gentleman is great. Maybe, but maybe, no, maybe, maybe, maybe it's not. I don't know, but like, but it is wild. And, yeah, and then you know it gets to them, and they 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 get into it. Mickey's flush with new life, but guilt, oh guilt. Mm. And David Caruso's lurking, and Ray is lurking with his great friend Marty. Marty, oh, publisher and and. And buddy to the end. Yeah, the 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 the, the Falstaffian figure. And it kind of builds up to a further robbery, and kind of we know she's going to figure out who Scott is. How's she going to take it? Kind of weird. She, yeah, she doesn't freak out. She just doesn't immediately call the police. Yeah, <laughs> I would immediately call like the FBI. And and you know, because like the idea is like there's this. Nine and a half weeks, the Adrian Line movie with Mickey Rourke mm-hmm. and Kim Bassinger. It's kind of a similar storyline of a woman who meets this like hunky but creepy guy who mm. kind of awakens her, but then she realized the awakening is actually dangerous and gross and I gotta get out of this thing. Mm-hmm. I know no offense to Stephen Bauer, but he is not nineteen eighty two Mickey Rourke. <laughs> no. Well I mean the thing too is that the movie wants to. I, I've never seen Nine and a Half Weeks, but I don't think the movie necessarily agrees with Mickey Rourke's character. Perhaps no, no, it doesn't. Yeah. It, like and, it, it shows that he is kind of a sociopath. In the yeah. same vein that this movie should mm-hmm. show that Scott is a sociopath. As, as Does opposed, it though? No, not at all. Not no. at all. No. Yeah, as opposed to like, yeah, the movie views him as like a um, cool and mysterious. And by the end, he's like a guardian pervert. He's like he... it is wild. Then then they they kind of shoehorn Caruso in to be the ultimate villain. Um, doesn't really work. Doesn't really work, and it ends with a freeze frame of a wounded but winning Stephen Bauer walking away, and Mickey and Mickey and Ray's relationship it's back on track. But Mickey kinda... will but Mickey's relationship Mickey will always have the memory. <laughs> of, of sexy burglar Scott Muller. <laughs> As he like slinks away into the night with a knife wound from the oh by the way uh should we how much do we want to spoil? Oh, I don't know. I cuz I really recommend everyone watch this movie. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. It's like yeah, it's like yeah, we'll just say that like yeah, some stuff happens at the end, but I, mean, a- I guess we said that he survives, but at the same time like it's a wild ending. Yeah. Check it out. Check <laughs> folks, check it out. Check it out. <laughs> I mean, I totally understand why it bombed, and it does not see the thing about it is it actually does not have the high concept rules mm-hmm. of a Simpson Brockheimer production. It's trying to copy an Adrian Line erotic thriller that mm-hmm. were hot at the time. It was trying to catch a bandwagon rather than, as Jerry Bruckheimer said, show the kids what the bandwagon is. Mm. You know, they're just joining, like, it's just a copycat movie of the many erotic thrillers that. Um, populated the 80s and yeah, also which, you know I mean you know and you go to Karina Longworth's erotic 80s podcast um, mm-hmm. which I think this movie is like briefly mentioned on but nine and a half, there's a full episode of nine and a half weeks um, that you can <laughs> check out and about the strange creepy side of the real Mickey Rourke um, oh no all presented in that um, but this one you know 
there it was a time and you know it is i mean it's you know it's basically yuppies rich yuppies who have everything mm -hmm. and one of them steps out and shows like the danger basically of stepping out and having sex like an aids parable too is all mm. happening at the same time um not but the the they're just trying to sell these you know yuppie erotic thrillers to men and women in the suburbs who were desperate to cheat on their spouses but didn't, yeah. have, the, didn't have the guts <laughs> a lot of, a lot of uh, you know cowards and, yeah like Don Simpson would say they were cowards <laughs> how dare how dare you stay pure those wusses like join me in my cocaine cave like my mom and dad oh no <laughs> that, that's Don Simpson not me that's oh. Don Simpson there who's like you know oh, no. feeling that way but it is a absolutely nutty, mm -hmm. strange, tonally weird, but deathly entertaining movie. It's an it's an odd bird. It's interesting. It's like a really, I think it really helps from the um, the cast. I think there the, the you have like the five principal leads mm -hmm. are so they're watchable. Yeah, they're, they're very watchable, watchable. Watchable at worst. Pretty good. At best. Yeah, exactly. And, and they add texture to what would otherwise, like David Caruso's like nuttiness, John Getz's kind of like sleazy wimpiness. Like there's like all these little Barbara Williams is like, she's her, like an everybody. Yeah, and who's very perplexed by the entire thing. I was telling you that I it struck me that because I'd never seen her before that I almost had like Truman Show vibes. They just cast this lady from the suburbs. She's like, surrounded what? her with these actors playing these roles and like, let's see what she does. <laughs> you know? Let's see what happens when she interacts with Norm from Cheers. Yeah, Ed Harris, instead of wanting to make Americana, wants to make an erotic thriller. <laughs> Pitoff. Pitoff, yeah. Oh, he's so good in that, man. He should have won. Best supporting yeah. actor. Oh, and what, a, what a good movie that is. Oh, Better movie than Thief of Hearts. By a long shot, but 100%. we're not we're not comparing them. It just no! came up. It just came up and crossed our minds. <laughs> yeah, but like here's the thing. Like I think think part of why I'm like more like forgiving of Thief of Hearts than uh, Flash Dance is it is like a total surprise, and then it also does not have that like same like it's like I think like with Flash Dance it's almost inevitable that you're gonna be uh, let down a little bit. Because of the sheer just, gravity. And not having seen it in all these years of knowing about kind of the cultural tropes mm -hmm. of it. It's very hard like to be like a Top Gun and kind of like live up to the cultural tropes. For sure. And I think, but also we have a reputation, almost 100 episodes in, of uh, being lovers of the abandoned puppy dog movies. Yeah, oh, and this is an abandoned puppy dog. <laughs> this of a is film. an abandoned puppy dog of a movie, if there ever was one. And it's not great mm -hmm. it's actually probably like it, some people would call it bad yeah <laughs> but it's weird it's different you ain't seen anything like it the tone is insane the soundtrack pops and the performances are interesting yeah so we give an academy academy recommendation it's it's a weird movie man you know and i'd love to like have talk to douglas day stewart to say like so what happened because yeah. in, the interesting other thing in this high concept book, I think it's Charles Fleming's. It doesn't fit Charles Fleming's thesis mm. to, in his discussion. Gets like it's mentioned like twice, mm. and no production details at all in the entire book. Just because it just doesn't fit in. Because you know, because he wants high flying hits. 
he doesn't want to show that Simpson failed. You know, because he wants to show like the success side and the downside. Right. Um, that it wasn't a little more up and down than that, which it, you know, he's in the movie business. Can't guarantee it as successful even as they were as the as the alliance as the alliance of the 1980s but you know both movies are interesting if you haven't seen flash dance in a while you never seen flash dance in a while check it out definitely check out thief of hearts um this was a fun duo i'm excited to get into it with these guys and kind of give some color on but it also goes to show too with both movies even adrian line the kind of um how good tony scott is at accomplishing some more material. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... taking taking something dopey and make and really weaving gold. Yeah, entertaining gold out of it. And there's a reason he was the in-house guy. There's a reason he directed three of the Simpson Bruckheimer productions. Mm-hmm. You know, he was the guy to do it. He, he his sheen the sheen he adds to films is incredible. And the Adrian Lyons got good sheen. Let's not discount no. it. And even Douglas Day Stewart, I mean, I think Andrew Laszlo's cinematography in Thief of Hearts is actually quite good and quite fun. And uh, confirms my belief that any cinematographer with the first or last name of Laszlo um, is probably pretty good <laughs> cinematography. Yeah, that, something about Hungary. I don't know if it's the water yeah. or the paprika, but something makes them good cinematographers. They, they know their way around the camera. The Magyars. Uh, yeah, but you know, we are just skimming the surface. We're going to get into all the nitty-gritty, gross details of the world of Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, <laughs> the highs and lows. Uh, but next week, we are moving into our 100th episode. Surprise! We don't know what's. We don't even know what's going to happen. Patrick and I got to talk about it. I know. <laughs> oh man, are we going to watch uh, Jingle All the Way 50 times? Is, is it going to be another Geely screening? Who's to freaking say? <laughs> Are they gonna? Are is uh is Jen gonna put Don and I in those like Clockwork Orange contraptions as we're forced to watch Geely? You gotta go to the Baywatch. Gotta oh no! Go. Oh no! Oh, gotta no. go to the Baywatch. No, never. No. Go to the, go to the Baywatch forever. <laughs> oh, oh no! no. <laughs> forced to watch Justin Bartha rap. <laughs> yes, and then um. To give some give a, give a little thing though, at the week after that, we'll be watching Legend Ridley, mm. Ridley Scott, and the week after that, something I'm really excited for is a neo noir week. Ridley Ridley's someone to watch over me with uh paired with Tony Scott's Revenge, mm. um, which Quentin Tarantino has said is Tony Scott's greatest film. So <laughs> let's get ready for that. But this is a fun start to this digression. Um, obviously we're going long in this series but i hope and we hope you're having fun with it i'm having fun Uh, me too you know i this is definitely not the baywatch no hell no yeah i would this yeah this this is even like the stinkers are interesting to to, like take apart absolutely absolutely so next week 100th episode we'll see you then bye-bye